Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop Podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Lighthouse Flyby Writers Project brings exciting up-and-coming authors to Denver for a whirlwind weekend of literary events, including craft seminars, a fundraising reception, readings, informed discussions, and book signings. During the reception of the September 2012 Flyby Writers Project, featuring Steve Almond, Lighthouse classrooms were filled with poker tables. A light-on-their-feet volunteer team served up drink refills to battling poker players, both novice and cutthroat. And during the middle of the poker tournament, when half the players had lost their final chips, Steve Allman took to the grotto stage for a reading. The poker tournament raised nearly $6,000 for Writership, a lighthouse program that provides tuition assistance for those individuals who find the cost of studying and advancing their lives as writers prohibitive. Thank you to all the flyby reception participants. Hi, everyone. Hi. Just show of hand, who's, who's still in? And I just have to ask, because the ethics committee approached me, is anybody hustling us tonight? Okay. Okay. I did. I, I heard reports. It was anecdotal, and I'm not making any formal charges. But... I've heard. I've got your number. What we're going to do now is actually introduce the person you're here for. And we are not so narcissistic as to not know that you're waiting for us to get off of the stage. And um, we had this whole plan. There was a comedian who was going to come and introduce him, and it was going to be hilarious, and it was going to be awesome. And you were going to, like, your face was going to hurt. You were laughing so hard. But he didn't show up. Um, so it's just us. Yeah. So Mike was going to start us off. I was? She always does this. I um, do. Please give it up for Steve Almond. That was a great introduction. And I don't feel guilty at all because I have been giving all night at my poker table. I've been so generous. So uh, I've just had a great time and, uh, wow, Um, I had a great time all day and I'll read a little bit of this poker story because I know that fundamentally I would rather be playing poker than (laughs) listening to me, so... Uh, and I'm going to read from, since this is the first time I think I've ever read in Denver, I'm just going to read from like 17 books, but just like a sentence from each. The poo-poo platter of readings. Um, uh, but thanks so much to Lighthouse for bringing me in, and, and uh, I've just had a ball. You guys are great. Um, give as generously to them away from the poker table as I have given at the poker table. And I have given more than $2,000. So uh, this, this just, I'm going to just read the very beginning of this story called Donkey Greedy, Donkey Gets Punched, which is, well, we'll find out. Dr. Raymond Oss had become, in the restless leisure of his late middle age, a poker player. He had a weakness for the game and the ruthless depressives it attracted. 
One of which he probably was, fair enough, though it wasn't something he wanted known. I feel like I might be too close to this mic, or is that not? Okay. Okay. Too late. Uh, Ruthless depressives, okay. Uh, Osp is a psychoanalyst and private practice and the head of two committees at the San Francisco Institute. He was a short man with a meticulous Trotsky beard and a flair for hats that did not suit him. He cured souls very expensively from an office near his home in Los Altos. On Saturday mornings, Osp put on a sweatsuit and orthotic tennis shoes and told Sharon he was off to his Tai Chi class. Then he shot up 101 straight to Artichoke Joe's in San Bruno, where he played Texas Hold'em at the 3-6 table for five hours straight. <laughs> he mucked 80% of his hands, bluffed only on the button, and lost a little more than he won. He didn't mind losing either if the cards were to blame. It was only when he screwed up, when he'd failed to see a flush developing or got slow played by some grinning Chinese maniac. <laughs> I appreciate your appreciation of racism. Uh, because you'll find it's a theme in my work. God is angry. Um, got so played by some grinning Chinese maniac that he felt the pinch of genuine rage, and even these hands offered a certain masochistic pleasure, a mortification that was swift and public. It was an inconvenient arrangement, tawdry from certain angles, but Oz couldn't help himself. The moment he spotted the dismal pink stucco of the casino's facade, the sea of bent cigarettes rising from the giant ashtray under the awning, he felt a squirt of brainless adrenaline. He had become addicted to the garlic and ginger prawns, too, a dish so richly infiltrated with MSG that it made his tongue go numb. Sometimes toward the end of a session, having made his third and final promise to cash in after the next hand, Oss would sit back and let the sensations wash over him, the clack of Guy tiles being stirred, the nimble flicking of the cars, the confusion of colognes and nicotine, the monstrous lonely twitch of the place. He loved artichoke joes, especially while hating it. <laughs> One day, Oss arrived home to find Sharon waiting in his den. She put on a green eye shade and, began, uh, and pulled out a deck of cards and began dealing them onto his oriental rug. She'd done theater in college. (laughs) How long have you known? Oz said. Sharon frowned. Jacob, age 11, had tipped her off, the little shit. (laughs) He hacked into your computer, Sharon said. I didn't hack into anything, Jacob yelled from the hallway. I just clicked the history tab for like one second. (laughs) Sharon began speaking in her calm social worker tone. Oz glanced at the scattered cards, a cluster of four hearts, queen high, and thought of his henpecked father. You could have told me, Sharon said, I would have understood. He didn't want his wife's understanding. He had enough of that already. He wanted her indignation, her censure, the stain of his moral insufficiencies tossed between them like a bet. But she saw his duplicity and raised her forgiveness. So he bid artichoke Joe's thank you. Rarely is there a crowd sophisticated and or drunk enough to laugh at them. So he bid Artichoke Joe's farewell, farewell green felt, farewell ginger prawns, and started playing in a weekly game with fellow analysts. The 20... Oh, okay, somebody's just going to the bathroom, yeah. 
is uh, playing a game with weekly, uh, fellow analysts. The $20 buy-in, the arthritic, the non-alcoholic beer, the arthritic dithering over a 75-cent raise, it was his penance. <laughs> Overall, he felt himself vaguely improved. He began to hike the Stanford Hills and reread Dostoevsky and brought Sharon to the Swiss Alps for a month. His older son, Ike, insisted on calling him Cisco, it being his impression that the Cisco kid had been a famous gambler. Jacob continued to sneak into his office in the hopes of catching him playing online. Check it before you wreck it, daddy-o, <laughs> he warned. Oss wanted very much to strike the boy. <laughs> Just once, near the eye. Okay. So, so uh, you know, apparently there's an election coming up. Um, and so I wanted to read uh, from uh, My Life in Heavy Metal. There was a story that I wrote, a story called How to Love a Republican. It was written during the... Uh, a, this is a, an inner political couple right here. It's beautiful to see. They're still together. Almost till the end of right, the evening. Um, and, you know, I wrote it. I remember... Uh, I wrote it in the throes of the 2000, uh, okay, election. Um, <laughs> but uh, I remember when I conceived of it, which was uh, I went to a reading at an old, a bookstore that's since closed in Boston, uh, and I remember walking down the stairs, uh, and I saw this young couple, very uh, sort of neatly dressed, which for me is a very low standard. But they, they were, you know, he was in a suit, and she was in kind of a... A uh, female pantsuit with a, like a thing in her hair. She just looked, they look like Republicans. I'm being bigoted. I'm a liberal bigot, but I was like, those people look wealthy and they look like Republicans. But they were making out totally hot. And he was like feeling her ass on through this. And I was like, wow. I had this moment through my thick carapace of liberal bigotry of like, wow, Republicans fuck, man. You know? Uh, and so this title popped into my How to Love a Republican. You know, I just loved how it sounded because there's this internal rhyme, How to Love a Republican, right? Uh, and so then, sure enough, fate delivered me uh, a complete, uh, well, I'm not going to, just an abortion of justice, which was the way I viewed it, uh, in the form of this election, and it drove me crazy. So I wrote this 15,000-word story that was awful because it was full of my angry ranting. But in the middle of it was a really interesting story, which is about how you love somebody when you really don't agree on certain very basic things, and if that's possible. That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, Jane Austen asked that question, every novel. So I'm not going to read any of the really interesting, thought-provoking part. I'll just read a sex scene, since you guys are soft. <laughs> what Darcy enjoyed most was a good lathering between the thighs. It's a fairly loose interpretation of lathering. As a lifelong liberal, this was one of my specialties. In some obscure but plausible fashion, I viewed the general neglect of the region as a bedrock of conservatism. The female sex was, in political terms, the equivalent of the inner city, a dark and mysterious zone, vilified by the powerful, derided as incapable of self-improvement, entrenched and smelly. Going down on a woman was a dirty business, humiliating, potentially infectious, best delegated to the sensitivos of the left. I relished the act, which I considered to be what Joe Lieberman would have termed in his phlegmy rabbinical tone, a mitzvah. 
which is like a, a Jewish word for good deed, right? It required certain sacrifices, the deprivation of oxygen to begin with, a certain ridiculousness of posture, cramping in the lower extremities. One had to engage with the process. There were no quick fixes. This was especially true in Darcy's case. She was scandalized by the intensity of her desire and highly aroused by the scandal. You figured out by now that Darcy's the Republican and our our despicable narrator is the liberal bigot. Uh, She was scandalized by the intensity of her desire and highly aroused by this scandal. But the going was slow. If I told her, I want to kiss you there, she would grow flustered and glance about helplessly. Just act was her point. Dip all the soppy acknowledgement, the naming of things in the dark. The word pussy made her wince, a tainted word, I admit, but one I employed with utmost fondness and in the spirit of fond excitements. I kissed my way down her belly, the damp undersides of her breasts, her bumpy sternum, the belly she lamented not ridding herself of. Always I could feel the tendons of her groin tensing. I nipped at them occasionally. She perfumed herself, which meant withstanding an initial astringency, after which she tasted wonderfully meaning strongly of herself, the brackish bouquet of her insides. I was careful not to linger in any one spot, but to explore the entire intricate topography, the nerves flushed with blood and tingling mysteriously, while Darcy pressed herself back on the pillows and turned to face the wall and murmured the blessed, nonsensical approvals of climax. Okay. So we had a really amazing classes this afternoon. They were so fantastic. And uh, one of the just most wonderful, delicious moments, I think it was in a humor class, is asked people to write these uh, primers. And uh, a, a woman, Lori, God bless her, wrote a primer on... Do you, yes, we all remember it enthusiastically. And what, what did it involve? It involved like how horrible and ugly men's penises are and how much they overvalue them. Uh, and they're in, it was just almost unanimous approval of this piece. <laughs> so, it was great. It was, it was like, I'm, I'm on board. You had me at ugly penis. Um, so I want to read from uh, just a few little pieces from these weird little DIY books that I make, which are, which are upstairs. I sell them uh, just in person. Um, it, it, they have no ISBN and they're not online. I just like, I've, I've liked the process of, um, which I think is sort of what Lighthouse is about as well, is thinking about literature as something that is about forming a community. And there is a commercial aspect to it. They've got to pay the rent and so forth. As we all know, that's why you're giving generously. But the central mission is to create community. And what I love about readings, going to them, you go to them all the time, is that in the best instance, they create a little community. And rather than having the book be some sort of commercial adjunct to that, I like the idea of the book as an artifact that commemorates a particular human gathering. It's not mediated by a corporation. Um, you, Steve, yes, ma'am? Yes. I was surprised to learn today, um, and I don't think he would mention this because he doesn't seem to, that he actually sells these for Doctors Without Borders. He well, Doctors Without Borders did not write these books. I wrote these books. So the correct way to put it is I, I, I sell them for narcissistic gratification and give the proceeds to Dr. Um, so, But I'll just talk about them a little bit. 
good, good luck claiming, right, good luck claiming that they're tax deductible. Um, so so uh, the first one I did was called This Won't Take But a Minute, Honey, and it's actually two books, weirdly enough. And one side is craft, uh, I guess, really. They're 30 short, 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 short essays about the psychological and emotional stuff that keeps people from doing better creative work. And the other side are short shorts. Uh, so I want to read a few of those short shorts. Um, just just uh, one or two. Let's see. Um, uh, here's one called How You Know You're an Adult. This will be helpful for you. <laughs> How You Know You're an Adult. Suddenly, socks don't seem like a lousy gift at all. <laughs> There's that moment you reach where it's like, hell yeah, it socks. The gold strip, and it's, oh, right. A nice pair of socks, silk, or a cotton blend. And a subtle color, too, slate or ochre. Suddenly you see yourself in nice socks. You covet other men's socks. You walk around the city where you're living, coveting other men's socks. With their socks, your life might come together more convincingly. Figures of authority would be given pause. Women would associate you with words like sang <laughs> Waited 20 years to fucking use that word. And I, oh, no, no, damn, right there. You're not obvious about this new, what to call it, interest. You don't linger around the dainty sock racks looking forlorn or urge your friends to go barefoot in your home. You drop hints, though. Keep up a healthy correspondence with the surviving grandparents. Make a point of thank you notes. You do these things. Exhibit a little grace. And just like that, your feet slip inside the fabric and you rise and walk like a grown-up. <laughs> so weird. Um, I'm not, there's m- many of these that are just depressing, so I'm going to try and stay away from those. Uh, but there was a woman who wrote a great piece uh, this afternoon about being an angry uh, uh, cashier, basically, in, in a bookstore. And it's just full of this totally deserved, earned grievance of the public and their, and their awfulness. And, of course, when I was sitting around writing horrible stuff for 10 years in Somerville before I stopped making bad decisions or ho- really horrible decisions, uh, I just spent like 10, 14 hours alone writing. And they don't tell you this when you sign up to be a writer. It's mostly really lonely and kind of doubt-provoking. So I would, I would go, I would just get human contact wherever I could. Suffice it to say I had no friends. Um, like I did have a weekly poker game, and I would show up there like a crack addict. Like, hey, guys, how you doing? Yeah, you know. But the one place I'd go, I'd go to the Star Market, which was just up the street uh, from my, my apartment in Somerville, and I would just, I was the guy who figured that because I bought a banana... I, this entitled me to a social discourse with the cashiers. <laughs> and any of you who have done any cashier work, like, I am your nightmare. Like, a lonely guy who wants to relate. <laughs> so, this is unfriendly cashiers. Not rude, which would imply all the tired grudges against fate, as would bitter or hard-bitten or impervious with its slender caprice. Just unfriendly, as in not interested in being your friend, not interested in your clothing or chummy witticisms in what you're buying today, just there at the register with a name tag. 
My favorites work at down-in-the-mouth markets, the leaky emporiums with carts that are a tetanus threat, and off-brands whose lettering croons sweetly off-key. And what I like second best about them is that they watch everything, a step ahead of your complaints and stupid coupons, tired of your voice before you even speak. These are men and women immune to mood, generous only in competence. You and your strawberry soda and salsa and your low-watt public friendliness face, they don't care. <laughs> Make a joke and they'll stare at you like you're naked and disappointing. Funny to you. <laughs> and what I like best about them is this stout refusal to prettify the situation, to obey the cursed slogans of our age with its pathological ulteriority and salesmanship, with its spirit, the color and composition of hot dogs. And best of all those moments when something unusual and true and funny happens, when a spoiled kid throws up from too many animal crackers, the unctuous new bag boy rams a plate glass window, or the manager slips on the ice outside on her ass, and the cashiers all in a row and against every grain of better judgment grin. <laughs> so some mean... Uh... So um, after I did this book, so that, that book is, is 10 bucks, and it's the dime bag, that's what it is. And uh, I, I so enjoyed uh, sort of moving from the you know, major multinational corporation, multi-platform mode of sales to the drug deal model of sales, uh, that I made another one of these books called uh, Letters from People Who Hate Me surprisingly filled with letters from people who hate me, all based on, you know, my political writing. I get a lot of hate mail, and so I want to read a few of those. And people are sometimes curious what people were reacting to. So the back of this book, in addition to having a really wonderful email exchange I had, has all the pieces that people were reacting to. But the letters are all real. I've edited uh, some of them for length, but they're all real. And um, I'll just read a couple. Dear asshole... <laughs> You are a fucking idiot. And your daughter in the picture on your website looks like a maggot. You're a disgraceful American, and it would have been so nice if you had been a passenger on one of the planes that crashed into the one of the World Trade Towers on 9-11-01. Signed, Joseph Kelly. Who's here tonight? Where is he? Denver's own... Okay, so that's his letter. Here's, here's my response. Dear Joseph, okay, you got me. My daughter does have kind of a maggoty look to her. For a while there, my wife and I were able to delude ourselves. I guess all parents do. We tell people her skin was alabaster or sometimes pearlescent. We thought it might be the kind of soap we were using. But I think in our heart of hearts, we knew something was wrong with her. Then came her first interaction with carrion. There was some kind of dead animal in our backyard. My wife says it was a rabbit, but I'm almost certain it was an opossum. 
Anyway, Josephine somehow got wind of it, and we found her out there burrowing into the thing's eye socket. (laughs) The neighbors came out to watch. It was kind of awkward. I guess it would be sort of like if you, Joseph Kelly, found yourself talking to some buddies at a party and you said, you know that guy, Steve Allen, I totally wish he'd been killed in the 9-11 attacks. And this voice behind you says, yeah, totally, we should have killed that filthy almond. And you turn around, hoping to maybe give the guy a high five, only to discover that it's Osama bin Laden. That would be awkward. Uh, here's another one. It's quite short. Steve, you are such a pussy. It's from Brian Holmes. Brian, a couple of things. First, the word pussy is spelled P-U-S-S-Y, not... P-U-S-S-I-E. Which I think would lead most people to conclude that I suffer from an excess of pus. I do not. Nonetheless, I get your point. You're not saying that I'm literally a vagina. You're saying that I'm a cowardly person. I'm not sure how the slang expression for female genitalia came to mean cowardly, but let's leave that aside for now. Here's the important thing. I am not a pussy or a coward. I'm a chicken shit. There's a big difference, Brian, and us chicken shits don't take kindly to being lumped together with all the pussies and cowards and wimps and wusses. Chicken shittery isn't just some fad for us, some trendy lifestyle decision. I am deeply committed to running away from any physical conflict while shrieking in a womanly manner. It's in my blood. The truth is, I come from a long line of chicken shits. My daddy was a chicken shit, and my daddy's daddy, and his daddy before him, and so on that way back to the days of antiquity. In fact, according to family lore, one of our ancient forebears was a radical homeless pacifist who flounced around the Sea of Galilee saying chicken shit stuff like, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also, and blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of of God. You can just imagine what happened to that fucking pussy. So the the third book I put out, uh, continuing on this theme of uh, very accurate titles, is called Bad Poetry. And it contains a a whole bunch of bad poems that I wrote not when I was 16 or 26, but when I was 36 and 37. I had a book in the world, uh, and uh, I had an MFA. I'd been writing for years. And the reason I think it's actually kind of a useful book in a certain way is, one, it reminds us that writing is mostly failure. But it is. It's mostly failure. I mean, you know, most of the time you don't, write the perfect sentence, and the story doesn't come. And the people who continue to write are the ones who are able to survive that and say, okay, all right, well, it wasn't perfect, or I didn't nail it this time, but I'll, I'll, get, them, I'll get them tomorrow. 
I don't mean to be a downer about it, but anybody who thinks you just go to the keyboard and, you know, it's just always wonderful is just crazy. It's mostly, you're mostly in a state of disappointment and, and questioning yourself. Um, but it's instructive to look at your failures. It's instructive to look at them because I really am convinced hiding behind every bad poem and essay and, and novel and uh, story is, is a really good, important, true story that you just weren't ready to tell yet. So that's what this book is. It's a bunch of horrible poems that I wrote and what was what, sort of what was really behind them. So I'm going to read you. There are many that are horrible. This is not even close to the worst one. It's called Ode to Water, which sounds fine, except that Ode is spelled O-W-E-D. <laughs> it's your first sign of trouble, folks. Here goes. It is said the ocean forgets everything. Right? <laughs> Haven't you heard that like a, like a thousand times? Like, don't give your keys to the ocean, man. The ocean forgets everything. <laughs> sure. Said by the poet. Forgets the lash of lightning and the stones it grinds to sand and the planks it swallows without joy or renunciation. Just gobbles. <laughs> Our way is to condemn reckless water. Right? <laughs> I'm even now as I read condemning reckless water. We like water we can walk upon or stare into or pour down our funneled throats. We like water that plays at tranquility, a flatness laid like maps across everything. We might have come from this placid body, might have grown smooth skin or flippers, sure, why not? And holes to breathe from, those insistent hisses which order us home. To our villages. Of course they do. Of course. That's why I'm from a village. The speaker of this poem's from a village. <laughs> to our wives and children, sure, throw in the kids. To our, to Har's to Har's murmuring. Listen now, this is you're gonna learn something. To Har to Har's murmuring with stew. And black earth, we trench and feed sun, raising salt water on our skin. <sighs> namaste, namaste. <laughs> Could I get any deeper? I suspect not. I rubbed this one out back in the Clinton heyday. The proximate guy breath. I, I made a... A Bible college in Western Carolina made the extraordinarily poor choice to invite me down to read. <laughs> I reciprocated by making the extraordinary poor decision to go and read this. And, I, and so there's like a hundred freshmen, you know, Bible school students all required to be there. And I read this line. I rubbed this one out back in the Clinton heyday. And there's just this one kid, you know, who can't. He goes... <laughs> And I looked at him and I go, you masturbate too. That's awesome. I do too. And we have something in common now. And he later sent me an anti-Semitic email. And that's true, weirdly. But <laughs> from his own email address, he was not, not a very clever criminal. All right, I rubbed this one out back in the Clinton heyday. The proximate cause being the reading delivered by a poetess named Maxine, beautiful in a disheveled manner with knee-high boots and a pleather skirt. 
She was married to an older gentleman, but I was convinced that I had only to write a poem of sufficient feeling and she would come to her senses. So it was a love poem. What poem isn't? What I admire so much here is the utter imprecision of my thinking, the lunging about for high-impact words and associations. I sort of dare you to try to map the logic of this poem. Or maybe no, punch yourself in the throat. That would be more relaxing. (laughs) Bad poets want so much to sound good. That's basically all we want. Funneled throats, insistent hisses. Reading this now is like watching my one-year-old stagger across the kitchen. Every time he manages to get a foot down without falling, his little ego bursts into flame. And did I summon the nerve to read this poem to Maxine? I'm afraid I did. (laughs) Those 35 seconds, and in particular the stunned after moments of silence, were really a major human event. I'd put Maxine in quite a spot. She was being wooed by a one-year-old. I realize I don't have many teeth, I was saying to her, and I still shit myself every few hours, and my neck often smells like rancid cheese, but I'm pretty sure I have everything you could ever desire in a lover. And she was trapped there on the other end of the line, breathing quietly and wishing to be out of kindness more than anything else, for she was a kind woman, not alive. Wow, she said finally. I really like the language. She liked the language so much, she had to go. She was so enamored of my ode and so confusingly in love with its maker that hanging up was her only existential option. It was invigorating to wield that kind of power. I was ready to swallow a plank without joy or renunciation. I was ready to condemn some reckless water. I was ready to murmur some goddamn horrors with stew. Who's with me, people? Okay, I'll just read one more real, uh, I think this is about the end, so let me just read uh, a one-sentence story. It is one sentence, uh, and I, I wanted to make sure I read it because I think oftentimes, especially when I talk about writing, I kind of emphasize all about unbearable feelings and getting the dark, painful truth of it, and da 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 and you know, that's partly true, but it's also true that writing is a place where you get to celebrate the ecstatic, the moments that are really divine, whatever that means to you. Uh, And so that's partly what you're trying to do, too, is commemorate those moments that are blessed. So this is called I Want to Buy the Guy a Drink Who. In the dead of a scowling New York January spots my great-aunt Meta on 64th and Central Park West, staring doubtfully at the icy crosswalk. And who, this guy, some handsome young fellow on his way to a bar with friends to drink, turns back, races across the street, takes her arm in his, and escorts her to the other side. The two of them leaning in, walking slowly, not unhappily, somewhat sexily, in the voluntary lingering of what youth knows of what it is to be old. And more so, after shepherding her under the awning of the restaurant where she will dine, he turns back in front of all his friends and says, Can I have your number? So that all Meta can do is smile and shyly demure in her humming Rhineland accent, an accent as rich as pot roast, simmered for hours, and delicate and beautiful. This moment 
one for the ages, one to make us young again, all of us, and foolishly hopeful as in love. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Podcast. We bring this to you thanks to the Lighthouse members, funders, and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website, lighthousewriters.org.